G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RVC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device. We're really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RVC podcast, and we don't ask for much in return, but be incredibly grateful if you could pop to Apple Podcast or Acast or Spotify and leave us a review. Obviously, a five-star review would be great, um, and we'd really appreciate if you could take a couple of minutes of your time to leave us a review. So jo- today, joining Brian and myself in the studio, we're going to talk to Elsa Beltran. Again, thank you, Elsa, for joining us. I know I did, I did say it's been a couple of years but you correctly pointed out it's only been a year since you uh, you, you last uh, came onto the podcast but thank you very indeed. much indeed you are more than welcome and um and a, a topic um that we thought about doing would be um about animals dogs or cats that are presented with anasocoria and what should you do yeah that's a very interesting topic in the meaning um you will have some patients that come to you and you see an unequal uh, pupil size, no? which is defined as anisocoria. And the big question sometimes that we ask ourselves is, oh, should I be worried? Uh, is something that could be something serious or is something that probably uh, it, it will not be life-threatening? So the big question as well, oh, oh, in, a, in a very simple way, anisocoria can be caused by physiological cause, so like in people, uh, 20%, up to 20% of the people have physiological anisocoria, so they have an equal size pupil size, and it's nothing to worry about. Uh, or it could be a problem with the innervation to that iris, to that muscle iris, and uh, uh, the muscle is innervated by the autonomic system, and we know the autonomic system mainly has the parasympathetic and the sympathetic innervation. And then another big cause of anisocoria is being iatrogenic. Uh, you work with ophthalmologists or they put an eye drop and suddenly the pupil is very myotic because they give a uh, uh, parasympathetic mimetic or that pupil is very dilated because they give a sympathetic mimetic and they haven't told you. So I think that is the first thing that we should uh, be concerned. If you are surrounded by ophthalmologists, make sure they haven't put any eye drops that can interfere on your assessment. But if we look at the big question, again, you have a dog with, or a cat with anisocoria, um, how is that, which is the abnormal pupil, no? Is the one that is dilated or is the one that is more myotic? And uh, one thing that can be very helpful is to assess the pupil size in a dark environment, for instance. Because if you assess the pupil size in a dark environment and you say, oh, yeah, how I look at the eyes in a dark environment. But from the distance with the direct ophthalmoscope, you just can look the reflexivity of the tapetum area um, and then... Um, if you're in the dark and you see a very obvious anisocoria, so one pupil is still smaller and the other one is dilated, then uh, the most likely is that your problem is with the pupil that is smaller. So if an anisocoria is more obvious in the dark, which means a pupil is not able to dilate because the normal physiology is that the pupils will dilate in the dark, you have a problem with the sympathetic innervation. So that pupil is not able to get dilated in the dark. Um, so if you have a problem with the sympathetic innervation, uh, obviously the big question is where is the problem? And for that, we have to go back to anatomy and we have to go back to how is that iris innervated by the sympathetic. And the iris gets dilated by stress, by all this uh, fight and flight, so this uh, uh, sympathetic system. So the first that get this uh, input is in the hypothalamus, so is in the brain. So the brain is, gets either sometimes a direct 
correct that the, there is a dark environment, and obviously that is by the optic nerve, but usually it's a stimulus of stress that make our pupils get dilated. So somehow that uh, first area in the hypothalamus and a way of understanding the sympathetic innervation to the eye is knowing that there are three neurons, yeah? And it's like known as the three-neuron pathway. So the... Um, the the first neuron and obviously a neuron has your cell body and a long axon yeah so or short axon but uh, you have the cell body that cell body of the first neuron is in the hypothalamic area pretty much uh, so that gets affected by this stimulus so obviously there is a long pathway from that cell body to get to the iris to make the dilation, yeah? So you need to know where all those goes because then you can probably see this other clinical signs that can tell you where the problem is. So, okay, we have the cell body in the hypothalamus and because it's a sympathetic um, innervation, do you know the sympathetic system is also known as the thoracolumbar system? You remember that? And why is that? Because when we talk about the autonomic system, the autonomic system is divided mainly by your preganglionic neuron and your postganglionic neuron. So your preganglionic neuron, the cell body is always in the CNS, and your postganglionic neuron, the cell body is located in a ganglion. And the ganglion is the collection of cell uh, bodies of neurons outside of the CNS. So they are in the PNS. So the preganglionic neurons of the sympathetic system, they are located in the thoracolumbar gray matter. Yeah? This is why the sympathetic system is known as the thoracolumbar system. And if you remember, the parasympathetic system is known as craniosacral system because the cell body of your preganglionic neurons are the gray matter either in the brainstem or in the sacral segments. So going back to the sympathetic, we know that the neuron has got uh, some input in the uh, hypothalamic area. So that axon has to travel all the way down until the first gray matter that is going to contain sympathetic neurons. And the first segment that can contain sympathetic neurons is T1, which means the thoracolumbar, the thoracic spinal cord segments of T1. And obviously you get a margin, no? so pretty much it's from T1 to T3 that the spinal cord segments that contains your preganglionic um, neurons to dilate the iris. So that axon that goes from the hypothalamus to T1, T3 goes very deep in the white matter tracts of the brainstem and through all the spinal core until it gets to T1, yeah? So that is a very protected axon. What does it mean? That if you have a lack of sympathetic innervation to the eye, that obviously giving a name to that when we have a, a, a lack of sympathetic innervation to the eye is known as the Horner's syndrome. Uh, but uh, clinical signs, what we can see, we can see meiosis, we can see ptosis, we can see an ophthalmia, a little bit of narrowing of the palpebral fissure. So all of that is because you have the lack of innervation. And if your problem is in the first neuron that is either in the hypothalamus or all the way down to the T1, you should have very severe neuroscience. You're not going to have a dog, a cat that is walking, happy, mental status normal with a meiotic pupil because of a lack of in sympathetic innervation. And you think, oh, it could be a central component. It will be very, very unlikely because it's a very protective track, which means if you have a brainstem uh, damage to that track, that cat or that dog is going to be mentally extremely affected, they're going probably to stuporos. And this is when we have a dog that well, cut this stuporos, we assess the pupils. And if the pupils are meiotic, it's because that um, 
tract that goes from the hypothalamus to the T1 that is known as tectotegmental spinal tract because it goes through the between the tectum and the tegmentum in the midbrain and all the way down to T1. So that tract is very deep and very protective. So you have a brainstem damage, it would be either stuporous, comatose, or extremely, extremely obtunded. And if it's in the spinal core, the same is very deep in the spinal core. Therefore, if you have, it's always ipsilateral, so you have ipsilateral damage, the motor pathway of that uh, and, the, and the sensory will be extremely affected. So they are either hemiplegic or hemiparetic, so they will have some long track signs. So you're going to have some deficits on the gait. If you have a dog that is walking totally normal, that axon cannot be affected because they are very deep in the, in the, in the, in the white matter um, funiculus. And then it's going to synapse with your preganglionic neuron that is the second neuron of this pathway and that is in the gray matter from t1 to t3 and that axon is going to leave the cns and it have to go all the way back to the eye yeah so it has to exit at the level of the brachial plexus mainly containing the t1 t3 spinal cord segments and it has to join a big nerve but that big nerve is parasympathetic which is the vagus nerve and together they form a trunk which is the sim- the vagosympathetic trunk but it doesn't mean that the vagus has sympathetic function the vagus is always parasympathetic because vagus if you remember is number 10 and the number 10 arises from the brainstem and if we said cranial sacral system so you have a cranial nerve with autonomic function will always be parasympathetic yeah so it goes with the vagus the sympathetic uh, goes uh, cranially and it forms together the vagus sympathetic trunk that is very very close to the carotid so they go all together up and down but the uh, sympathetic um, pathways go all the way cranial and it has to join the postganglionic neuron and if you remember in the sympathetic system the ganglions are away from the organ they innervate. So this ganglion that will give your postganglionic uh, neuron to the eye is very clo- close to the bulla, so it's medial and, vent- uh, and ventral to the bulla. So at that level, you have a ganglion that if you think where it's located, is in the cranial part of the cervical spine, pretty much. So this is where the name of that ganglion comes. So it's cranial cervical ganglion. And that ganglion will contain your postganglionic cell body. So it, the synapses from your preganglionic axon that goes all the way up, up with the vagosympathetic trunk, it synapses with your postganglionic neuron. And that's postganglionic neuron, the axons, goes back inside the skull, not inside the brain, just inside the skull, with the tympanoccipital fissure. It rounds at the base of the cranial um, fossa, and it exits through the fissure that anything that goes to the orbit, with the exception of the optic nerve, anything that goes to the orbit will exit to that fissure. And that fissure is known as the orbital fissure. And then that postganglionic axon will go and innervate the uh, dilator uh, part of the iris and the iris will dilate. So it's a long pathway, but if you think about all the areas, then when you have a Horner syndrome, it can uh, justify it. As we said, if you have the first neuron that is affected, that is all located in the CNS, you will have CNS signs. Then if we go through the second neuron that, as we said, it starts in the T1, T3, and it goes all the way up to the cranial cervical ganglion, you can have some uh, medial tina, mediastinal mass, something in the chest that can 
if they are very cranial located, they will affect that. If you have a brachial plexus avulsion, you have a brachial plexus mass, but then you will have signs of your thoracic limb ipsilaterally affected. So if you have a dog that comes lame and is not putting weight on that uh, thoracic limb and it has ipsilateral horner, the most likely is that they are associated, that the most likely they have a deep, probably mass structure in that area. Or you have a cat, a dog that has been bitten in the neck and it comes with a, a, a Horner syndrome on the same side of the injury, the most likely is they are affected. Or sometimes they can have a thyroid mass, uh, a tumor in the neck. So it's, it's very important to palpate all that area, see if you notice any uh, mass. Or they have an esophageal tube place and they come out, oh, has a Horner syndrome. Well, it's, very, it's, it's not uncommon to see because of really just the irritation of that area placed in the tube, you ipsilaterally affect your uh, preganglionic axon. Or if we are talking about your uh, postganglionic, then you have a middle ear disease, or you have a big bulla uh, surgery. They can have uh, affection because they are very close related. Yeah. So all these areas, because in the end, Horner syndrome is not really a diagnosis. Horner syndrome is a clinical sign. Yeah? It's like if you have seizures, if you have facial paralysis, it's a clinical sign. The big question is, should I be worried? And obviously, if you have some intracranial signs, then yes, that should be investigated. If you have some brachial plexus signs, yes. Sometimes we don't see any other clinical signs. And is the question, oh, is going to be a, a idiopathic one? What does it mean idiopathic? Obviously, idiopathic means that we don't find an underlying cause, which I don't believe it doesn't exist. It's just we don't know it. So it could be viral. It could be something that is, is there, which is, is very difficult for us to diagnose, but at least we cannot see a structural lesion. So if you have a dog that is clinically normal, hasn't shown any other clinical signs, your neuro exam is totally normal, Do you don't see any masses uh, externally, uh, doesn't have any signs of uh, middle or inner ear disease, to wait and see is not a bad because sometimes they um, either get better or they just remain the same. And um, when you're one of the things that probably you will read about is about the pharmacological test. Yeah. So there's a pharmacological test that potentially can guide you to say, oh, are we talking about the third neuron that is affected? Is it about the second neuron or is the first neuron? No, because if you have a Horner syndrome, you can divide it as the first order Horner syndrome, the second order Horner syndrome, or the third order Horner syndrome, according to the neuron that is affected. But uh, you have to be very careful using this pharmacological test. And how does it work? This pharmacological test is that what you do, you put an eye drop, so you put a, a, a sympathicomimetic because you want to mimic the sympathetic function. Yeah. So you put, for instance, a phenylephrine yeah? in a probably 0.01% uh, of phenylephrine. And what you want is to see how long it takes the pupil to dilate. So they say if it takes less than 20 minutes, is a third order. So the sooner it dilates, the closer to the eye is the lesion. So if it dilates in less than 20 minutes, it will be a third order. If it dilates between 20 and 40, it will be a second order. And if it dilates in more than an hour or it never dilates, it will be a first order. But you have to be very careful because imagine, imagine you have a, a two-year-old golden retriever that comes to you with a three-day history of a Horner syndrome. Happy dog, you don't see anything, everything is normal. And you, do, you don't have time to do the exam, and you say, oh, I just want to do the phenylephrine test. You do the phenylephrine test, and it comes as uh, it's an hour and a half, and it has been delayed. 
And you say, oh, it's a first order, I should be worried, because um, idiopathic uh, Horner syndrome usually are third order. In golden retrievers, it has been reported as a second order, but doesn't matter. You do this, and it's an hour and a half and hasn't delayed, and you say, oh, it's a first order, she's central. Bottom line, do, don't rely on this test, because this test is, works in what is known denervation hypersensitivity, which means when you get a muscle, in this case, like the aries muscle, is not innervated, uh, a lot of receptors has to be created. Yeah? And those receptors get time to create it, to be created. And if those receptors are not created, the phenylephrine doesn't work. And how long does it take for those receptors to be created? That's the big question. Yeah? And those receptors can take after 14 days to be created, which means if you do the phenylephrine test when the dog has three, four days history of Horner, it may respond because obviously that study is, is an average. So maybe dogs that develop a lot of receptors sooner, maybe dogs that they never develop in our receptors for this test to be reliable. So I would say you can do it, but be very careful interpreting it. If it's less than 20 minutes, perfect, because then you say it's a third order, but you still don't know the cause. It could be a, a tumor in the middle ear, uh, adenocarcinoma arising from the ear, and the first clinical sign. So it just tells you what the uh, axon could be affected. But I w put it this way, I will only trust this test if it's um, less than 20 minutes. If it takes longer, I will be very careful relying on that, on that test. I think you can do a lot of your exam to localize better. To, your... so do you do that test? I thought I'd just I give, you a, give you a break. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, do, do you, so you, you don't, do, don't do that test? I don't. And, and because of that variability in the, in the Because result? I think it's very difficult to... And again, if you do the neuro exam and you don't find anything, it's not going to be a first order. Uh, if you don't see anything in the neck, doesn't have any history, it's unlikely, but it's not going to be a, a second order. So yes, it's a third order, but then bottom line, it's not really going to tell you what it is because it's not like if they respond to this test, it's idiopathic. No, it just tells you the location of the of the potential neuron that is affected. So is that to help neurolocalization? Was that the idea about why it existed and, and has... Oh, I didn't invite... I didn't make that test, so I don't know why someone... So is that, is that really been superseded then by diagnostic imaging? I wouldn't say so. I think I think that should be replaced by your clinical reasoning and that should be uh, um, yeah I think you should as I said use your clinical thinking about why is the dog showing the clinical signs that have any other clinical signs I think um, it's probably as well like you know there's this neurophobia oh, oh god it's an isochoria let's do it I don't know let's do the test because sometimes you don't have time and and it's just to do the exam or, or to just th but it's very very important that we lo lose in brackets because in the end you just need the history and a quick neuro exam and make sure there is nothing else but it's just it's not reliable in the meaning that if it doesn't work if it works it tells you just is likely to be the postganglionic one but if it doesn't work it's very difficult to interpret that test so and and is it used equally like in dogs and cats yeah you can do it in dogs and cats very good, very good. Sorry to to uh, to stop your flow. Yeah, that's right. So, so what what would you what so what would you do further then? Or? So I guess again, if you if you don't find uh, anything else and you have this anisocoria that we just said in this case is the lack of sympathetic innervation to the eye, so you have this Horner syndrome. If you don't have any other um, uh, other clinical signs, the most likely is that it's either uh, a middle inner ear disease. But if you don't have any other clinical signs, like which other clinical signs would you expect with a middle inner ear disease? 
disease, facial paresis or facial paralysis or facial nerve involvement. If there is the inner component of the ear affected, you would expect some vestibular signs. So to monitor the dog or the cat, if they don't show any other clinical signs, is not a bad idea. If they showed uh, clinical signs, then obviously, yes, investigate which area. And um, if they don't, because in the end, you, you don't have a magic ball. So you can tell to the client or to the owner in this case, look, the most likely is that uh, it's uh, an underlying cause that uh, we cannot find it. It's likely to be idiopathic. However, we cannot rule out. And if they want to go for investigation because they want to be on the safe side, you have to make sure that you just don't do the head for investigation. You cover up to T1 because not because of the central component because we said that that cannot be unless they have other clinical signs but you can have a cranial mediastinal mass that the first clinical signs could be just a horner. So if they want to investigate, you have to make sure that if you do advanced image or just start with an X-ray of the of the head. Uh, cervical spine, but not because of not because of the spine, if not because of the neck area, include the the, the cranial part of the thorax. And uh, but as I said, if the owners rather prefer to wait and see, the risks are that the dog may develop something, and you cannot guarantee will not. But if the dog doesn't have it, or the cat doesn't have any other clinical signs, uh, is very unlikely uh, it will be something else. But the possibilities there. And that will be the sympathetic, the lack of sympathetic generation to the eye. So now we go to the anisocoria. No? You have a, a, a cat a dog with anisocoria, you go into the dark, and the anisocoria is less obvious. No? Say, oh, now it doesn't look like, and in the, in, and in the, um, in a bright light environment, the anisocoria is more obvious. So that is probably a lack of parasympathetic innervation. So the problem is the pupil that is too dilated. Yeah, but obviously, as I said, you have to be careful if the cat has or the dog has been on opioids, uh, has on uh, because that can really uh, overall in cats can really delay the pupils. So be very careful that it hasn't had any opioids, it hasn't had any medication that iatrogenically can confuse you. So if we go into the into the dark and the pupil, then it's so less obvious, and we go into the. Um, into the light environment, very bright, and then isocoria is, is, is very obvious. It could be that your problem, as I said, is in the dilated pupil. So now the question is, what is then the, the, the innervation to make the pupil that, the constrict? No? Because this is what is lacking, is the constriction of the pupil in response to the light. And a way of clinically assessing that pathway is doing the pupillary light reflex. So when you do the pupillary light reflex, as any reflex that you do in neurology, what do you need to think about? You need to think about your stimulus. You need a stimulus to elicit that reflex. You need your sensory neuron. You need sometimes some interneurons. You need a motor neuron and you need a muscle that works. So you need those five components. So if one of them are not great, you're not going to elicit that reflex. So you have a crap light, a light that is not very powerful. In a cat or dog that is very stressed, they don't match. Because obviously you have a sympathetic component that delays the pupil and you have a very low stimulus to constrict the pupil. Yeah? Is, is, it, is a phone light uh, strong enough? Don't do you use think? the phone. Try, I think the phone can be... And one thing that... Try the phone to your own eye and you will be surprised how painful it is. So be careful. And, and again, uh, just try to use a, a light that is indicated for, for PLRs and try to keep that eye for the rest of your working as a veterinary surgeon and you will love that light but I would really avoid using the phone because it has a very weird light and again just try it to your eye and it's very painful so um, 
so that's the light. But then th what is the last component is your mu muscle, uh, your iris muscle. So what happens if you have an atrophy of the of that? Uh, because in the, in the end, the iris is a muscle. If the muscle is atrophied, and can, can you see if it's atrophied? You sometimes see little holes or you see that the, the edges of the pupil are not really uh, well defined. If you have a, a iris atrophy that usually is associated with age, that muscle is not going to constrict and that pupil is going to get dilated all the time. So that is nothing to see with the innervation. It's a problem with the muscle. So those are two components that has nothing to do with the uh, parasympathetic uh, innervation, but you can get uh, a dilated uh, eye um, because of, uh, of those problems, mainly for the iris. So then what happened? Who detect that eye? Imagine the light is very good. So the retina, you need to have a functional retina. If your retina doesn't function, your, your pupil can be dilated. Yeah? And then um, that uh, retina has the retinal ganglion cells that uh, form the optic nerve. And the axons of the retinal ganglion cells from the optic nerve. That optic nerve goes inside the skull through the optic canal, joins the optic chiasm. And at the level of the optic chiasm, the majority of the fibers cross over. If we talk about percentage, you remember it was 75% in dogs, around 66 in cats. And they uh, join a nuclei that is in front of the uh, tectum, which is part of the midbrain. It's called the protectal nucleus. And there, that is your interneuron. And that interneuron are going to cross over again because um, brainstem, in this case, because you have to think which is the nerve that is going to constrict the pupil. And the nerve that is going to constrict the pupil is the oculomotor. Yeah? And the oculomotor is one of the cranial nerves because is you remember that we said about the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. So the parasympathetic delays the pupil. The, um, uh, the sympathetic delays the pupil, the parasympathetic constrict the pupil. And the cranial nerve that has parasympathetic function of constricting the pupil is the oculomotor. And the oculomotor is number three. And you remember the parts of the brainstem? The parts of the brainstem, there are three. From more rostral to more caudal, you have the midbrain, which is in the middle of the brain, so that is the more rostral part. Then you have the pons, and you have the medulla oblongata. So the only cranial nerve that arises from the pons is number five. Then the olfactory, which is number one, is, is a lot of fine malinating fibers that goes directly to the olfactory bulb. And uh, number two, which is optic nerve, is a misnomer. This is not a peripheral nerve, it's just an extension of the CNS. Yeah? So what do we have left then? Three and four. And three and four are the ones for the midbrain. Yeah? So five is the only one that is from the pons. So what we have left for the midbrain is three and four. And then from the medulla oblongata, the rest, from the six to the 12. So the one in charge of doing the ipsilateral constriction is the oculomotor, which is in the midbrain. So going back to our PLR, so we in imagine we put the light on the right eye. Yeah. So that red, right retina detects the light, goes to the right optic nerve, optic chiasm, cross over. So it's on the left side. We are on the uh, optic track, contralateral. Uh, um, synapse with the contralateral protectal nucleus, but that uh, neuron in the protectal nucleus, which is our, our interneuron, cross over again with the same fibers. So 75% of the fibers will go and cross over and then will synapse with your oculomotor. And that oculomotor belongs to the parasympathetic system, which in human, they love this name, is like the Edinger-Westphal nucleus. But in the end, what you should know, that is the parasympathetic nucleus of the oculomotor. And that belongs to your preganglionic neuron. Yeah? So that is your preganglionic neuron. And that neuron, the same that we were talking about, the sympathetic, will have to leave the CNS 
and will exit through the same fissure that goes to the orbit, as we said before, with the orbital fissure. And now, because this is a preganglionic neuron, we'll need to find your ganglion. And we're talking about the parasympathetic system. And in the parasympathetic system, the ganglion is very close to the eyeball. So in this case, it's a little um, ganglion that is called the ciliary ganglion. So that um, preganglionic uh, axon exits through the orbital fissure, goes to that little ciliary ganglion, and it gets very short nerves. And those nerves are the short ciliary nerves. And those are going to make the pupil to constrict respond to the light. Yeah. So this is the pathway of the of the uh, of the pupillae reflex. So obviously the question is, do I have a dilated eye? Yeah? What happened? The first question is that is that eye visual? This is something that you have to because if that eye is visual, it means that the path pathway of the retina and your optic nerve is working. Yeah, so you don't have to worry about it. And uh, so how can you test if that eye is visual? You can do the menace response. You can see how the dog behaves in an environment so obviously you have to cover one eye if you are just uh, because in this case we have unilateral isochoria well anisocoria we have only one eye that is dilated uh, make sure that, that that eye is visual and if it's visual then uh, do the PLRs yeah and the PLRs uh, you have when we do the PLRs as we said we have a, a direct PLR which is the pathway I just explained and an indirect PLR. What does it mean, an indirect PLR? An indirect PLR is that you put the light on that um, right eye, the one that we're assessing, and the left eye constrict a little bit. And why constrict a little bit? Because if you remember that we're talking about the percentages that cross over, so 75% will go back to the oculomotor the right eye, which is the one that innervates, but 25% will go through the contralateral and is the one that will contribute to your indirect PLR. So now you have to think, what happened with cats? Do they have a stronger or weaker indirect PLR than dogs? And if you think about 66% of the fibers will go to your direct PLR, around 34 will go through your indirect PLR. So they have a stronger indirect PLR. What happened with humans? Humans, we have 50 and 50%. So if you do the indirect PLR in front of the mirror before going to bed as every night, uh, your indirect PLR will be equal to your direct. Yeah? So, uh, but if you have a problem in this case, you have a dilated problem because of the lack of parasympathetic innervation. Imagine, as we said, we have a right dilated eye, yeah? which your problem is the oculomotor. Just think, do you think, are you going to have an indirect PLR on the left? You will. Because uh, because your problem will be in your uh, efferent motor, so it will be on your ocular motor. But if you put the light on the uh, right eye, that pathway will go to your left ocular motor, and that is still working. What happens if I put the light on my left eye? I will have a direct uh, a PLR on the left, but I will not have a direct indirect on the right. So I put my light on the left eye my right eye will not constrict. And that is a fixed dilated pupil that whatever you do to that eye, you don't get any constriction. And that is an oculomotor neuropathy. Obviously, the question here is that, should I be worried? And uh, with oculomotor, we have to be very careful because obviously um, it can be something inside the brain. And we're talking about, think about, for instance, a pituitary mass uh, because it runs very, very close to the pituitary gland. So if a pituitary mass starts growing laterally, the first nerve that is going to get affected is your oculomotor. So um, the other thing that can get affected, if you have a large pituitary uh, gland or, or pituitary mass, um, 
uh, it will be your thalamus. And sometimes if you have affected thalamus, the first clinical signs is just going to be uh, alter mental status, they may be a little bit quieter, but if your pituitary tumor is not functional, they may not have PUPD, they may not have systemic endocrine signs, and the only clinical signs, it could be, yeah, it's a little bit quieter, and then you see that dilated pupil, I will be worried. Um, sometimes, uh, again, in humans, it's uh, very associated to the internal carotid artery, so sometimes you can get some um, aneurysmas at that level, and the first clinical signs could be a dilated pupil. We don't see that in dogs, or at least we don't get to the diagnosis of that point, but any structural lesion at the base of, of the brain at that level can give you uh, an internal, what is called, we didn't mention that before, but if you have a fixed dilated pupil, that is not responding to the light, is called internal ophthalmoplegia. And then if you have a pure or all the oculomotor is affected, the parasympathetic part, but the oculomotor also does the motor component to the extraocular muscles and the levator palpebralis muscle. So what happens when you have the parasympathetic plus the motor component? Guess, the oculomotor innervates the majority of the extraocular muscles. And if you remember the extraocular muscles, uh, they are the, the dorsal rectus, the ventral rectus, the medial rectus, the lateral rectus, and the two obliques, the dorsal oblique and the ventral oblique. And if you think about the cranial nerves that innervate the extraocular muscles, they are the three, the fourth, and the sixth. So the oculomotor, the trochlear, and the abducens. So if you think about to abduct, what does it mean to abduct? To open, not to get away. So which muscle do you have to constrict to open the eye or to get away the eye is your lateral rectus. So this is what the abducens does. Trochlea is like a little system, like a pulling system that makes uh, this dorsolateral kind of movement. So if you think about what the trochlea is, the trochlea just innervates the dorsal oblique. The rest are oculomotor. So rather than learning what the oculomotor does, you know the six extraocular muscles, you know what the abducens does, the trochlear does, so the rest is oculomotor. So what happens if you have a lack of innervation to those extraocular muscles? So those extraocular muscles get atonic, they don't have muscle tone. So your abducens and your trochlear are going to pull out that eyeball. So you get what is known as a static lateral strabismus and a little bit dorsal. Yeah? And the other part that the oculomotor does is the uh, levator palpebralis. So if you lose the tone of the levator palpebralis, you get aptosis of the upper eyelid. So if you see a dog with aptosis of the upper eyelid, static strabismus, and dilated pupil, that is your oculomotor. And I will be concerned because sometimes you have an, a structural lesion at that level. Sometimes we just um, uh, find an uh, idiopathic cause. So we do advanced image. We just found an enlargement of that nerve, but it doesn't mean it's something bad. So uh, we publish this as, as the idiopathic oculomotor uh, neuropathy because we see this enlargement uh, based on advanced imaging, but these dogs never progress never develop any other clinical signs. So it's probably, we cannot call it neuritis because we don't have an histopathological um, uh, diagnosis to call it itis, but uh, we can say it is a neuropathy because that nerve is affected, it's an enlargement, but be careful because 
if you see an enlargement of that nerve on MRI, it doesn't mean straight away it has to be a, 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 a neoplasia. So it could be just an inflammation, a granuloma, uh, uh, and they, as I said, usually get better even with no treatment. Some of them we just don't put anything. It's like the idiopathic facial neuropathy. Sometimes we see an enlargement of the facial nerve, but they just get better or at least they don't progress. And, uh, and, uh, but as I said, if you have all this component, I will be concerned. And then, can I just say how many is 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 a idiopathic cause, and how many actually are more structural problems? I think I think it's difficult to say because we don't have any study that uh, uh, the ones that we did is the one that we included as non-progressive, so we didn't have. But sometimes it could be um, it would be a nice things to see. Okay, you have just an oculomotor neuropathy. How many of them could be a? But sometimes you have like a meningioma growing at the base of the of the brain, or you have a pituitary mass. So some of them can be. So if you see put it this way, if you see other neurological deficits, call it abnormal mental status, uh, other cranial nerves affected, that will not be idiopathic. So, but if you see only the oculomotor, there's a chance that that dog may not have a badness. We have only seen that mainly in dogs. Because uh, in cats, um, there is a disease that loves the short ciliary nerves in cats. And that is called the lymphoma. Lymphoma really like this short ciliary nerve. And you remember what we said before, the, the, the parasympathetic innervation to the eye. So your um, postganglionic uh, neurons that come from the ciliary ganglion, they are called the short ciliary nerves. And what is the difference between cats and dogs regarding the short ciliary nerves is that um, cats only have two short ciliary nerves, the medial and the lateral. And dogs have about five to eight short ciliary nerves. So what is the difference? For instance, imagine I have uh, only one of the short ciliary nerves affected because sometimes when they are affected by lymphoma, um, years ago it used to be associated to the leukemia virus, but nowadays we really barely see leukemia in cats, but it could be associated with leukemia virus and lymphoma. Uh, it, they usually start affecting one of those nerves. And if you have only one of those nerves affected, what is going to happen to that pupil is going to have a misshape. It's a dyscoria. And this is known as the D-shape or reverse D-shape pupil. And that happened only in cats because they only have those two uh, nerves, the lateral and the medial. So depending on the eye and depending if it's lateral or medial, you will see a deep shaped pupil because obviously that nerve is not working, so that part of the iris will get dilated. And if you see a D-shaped pupil or reverse D-shaped pupil, first you take a picture and you send it to me. <laughs> and then uh, things that you have to look for is lymphoma. So uh, obviously... Uh, chest, heart, abdomen, uh, because uh, usually, sometimes we don't find the cause, but sometimes could be associated with lymphoma. So it's something that in cats, uh, even if you have a fixed dilated pupil, so both short ciliary nerves are affected, uh, uh, in cats I will be quite concerned about lymphoma. So they get lymphoma just of that ciliary yeah, yeah. body? Yeah, it really lies that short ciliary nerve. So has anyone actually biopsy yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I, I had an interesting cat and I went to the pathologist and I said, oh, can you just biopsy the short ciliary nerves? And you have to, oh, I would have loved to show you the face when I asked them to look at the short ciliary nerves. They said, you're joking. But they look at it and it was in, interesting because it was very infiltrative with mm -hmm. lymphoma. It was very cool. Oh, and, um, and then other thing, as we said, obviously, don't be 
don't have what we say like tunnel vision in neurology because uh, one of the things for instance if you have a, a meiotic pupil uh, which in this case as we said before it could be the lack of sympathetic innervation we didn't say but for instance if you have a, a cat a dog with a horrible uveitis because of a coronal ulcer because of a of a of a um, eye problem itself if you have a uveitis you can have spasms of that muscle iris and you will get a constriction so uh, check obviously that there is not any component intraocular that can cause pain or any condition that can cause you uh, a uveitis that potentially or even a, a tumor uh, in the in, inside the eye that can potentially cause some meiosis or midrasis as well. Do you, do you think a number of these cases also come directly to uh, um, to neurology or to ophthalmology? Or is it more, I think, more you see the I think, corners? Yeah, I, I think we'll probably mix uh, the advantage and, and I, I feel... Uh, very privileged that I work with such a great team in ophthalmology uh, is that obviously we are a multidisciplinary hospital and, and, and we share and, and if they don't see an intraocular reason um, they they send it to us or the other way around if we don't really see a neuro cause for it we kind of ask their opinion so uh, it's, it's, it's a, a condition that is so important to have both points of view because this is the only way we can really see it as a as a both inputs otherwise you think it's always neurology and they always think it's always ophthalmology so it's it's such a amazing part of the neuroophthalmology uh, field that is is I feel as I said I think it's a privilege that we can have such a intense and very good workup from ophthalmology and the same time from neurology and I'm not saying about do it fancy tests or very advanced image just using the clinical reasoning and and see okay if he doesn't have any intracranial signs it's very unlikely it's going to be at that level or look this dog mentally doesn't look right it's subtended and uh, I will be concerned something else is going on and you said about say Labradors might have more golden, golden retrievers, retrievers yeah. sorry, have more idiopathic Horner, corners yeah. and why yeah. I, that's it i don't know and i, I just uh, probably like any of us i just i hate the word idiopathic and uh, it's better than iatrogenic <laughs> probably <laughs> uh, and uh, i think um the only thing that the golden retrievers and they say because they have done this pharmacological test is that is likely to be a second order and but we see in the meaning we see the opathic horner syndrome or put it this way we see horner syndrome and we don't find the underlying cause uh, and sometimes they can even jump to the other eye so they do well for a few months and then a few months later they develop on the other eye and then you question if it's some a virus or some uh, uh, yeah some infectious disease that somehow jumps to the other eye um, but it's always the same no it's not you don't get a biopsy of those nerves uh, because it's, it's, it's not ethically and it's not really gonna probably change what you do and you can do more damage than than any benefit and um, and in golden retrievers yes so if you see a golden retriever with a and usually they are very um, obvious horner. They have a severe ophthalmia. They have a severe protrusion of the third eyelid and the meiotic pupil. And you don't have to see all those clinical signs. So sometimes, and we see more that in central, sometimes we just see the meiotic part. So you don't have to see the third eyelid protrusion. You don't have to see the ophthalmia. But uh, as I said, in golden retrievers can look very dramatic. But if you don't see any other signs, the dog is happy and, and his uh, neuro exam is normal, hasn't developed anything, and the horner is going for two three months with that amount of time if it's something structural neoplastic inflammatory infectious by that time should have shown any other clinical signs so 
the time is something that can also help you to say, oh, it's less likely idiopathic, or look, if, in, if at any point it starts showing other clinical signs, and which are other clinical signs, so you can tell them, don't Obviously, how is the mental status? How is the gait? Do they notice any weakness on the side of the horners? Uh, do they notice that it's coughing more? Or is difficulty swallowing? Or does it have any vestibular signs? Is it leaning or falling more to one, one side? Those are clinical signs that the owner with the patient with the horner syndrome should monitor. Because if those doesn't happen, it's very unlikely it will be something that we could do something about it. Because for idiopathic horner, there is no treatment. Not definitely not a steroid. Sometimes you give a steroids and say, "Oh, thanks God, I gave a steroids because it's getting better." So they get better without steroids, and obviously steroids can have a lot of side effects. So do not give a steroids unless you have a reason for it. Thank you so much, uh, Elsa. We'll, we'll wrap it up there. But uh, what what a, um, a fan, fantastic in-depth uh, look at at anasocoria. And uh, I, I, uh, I, I suppose I didn't really ask a lot of questions. So there, there was no need. You, you answered everything, and uh, and I'm sure people have to uh, re-listen to, to certain parts of it just to get their understanding. So if they have anasocoria in practice, they should probably just say. I need, I need an hour. I'll listen to the podcast, <laughs> and then and then we'll be we'll be on it. So, uh, so thank you so much, Elsa. And hopefully, uh, I can persuade you, um, maybe in another year, to uh, to come back and have a have a Again, chat. Again, will be my pleasure. So thanks to you for listening, and don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your generic food based device, and that way you won't even have to miss um, worry about missing a podcast. If you leave us a review, five star review would be great. Don't forget to tell your friends, vet friends, other friends, and we'll play some show notes on the RVC pages. So if you just type in RVC Clinical Podcast into your search engine of choice, it should be top of the tree. So if you have any comments or suggestions for the podcast, please get in touch. So you can either email dbarfield.rvc.ac.uk or tweet at Don Barfield. Until next time, bye-bye.